Hi, Grace 242 kids. I'm Aubrey DeMaster. My favorite Christmas movie is Noel. I like it because it shows that you should never give up on your dreams. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Hello, I'm Josh Turner. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. There will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord's heaven, of the Lord Heaven's armies will make this happen. Hey Grace242, just two weeks ago my family and I had a family movie night where we watched one of my favorite Christmas movies, The Polar Express. And on that most recent watch through, I picked up on something that I had never noticed before. The movie's plot is set in motion when a young boy steps aboard a train bound for the North Pole on Christmas Eve. This young boy's belief in Santa Claus is at an all-time low, and his journey aboard the Polar Express will prove not only to be a journey to the North Pole, but a journey into his belief or lack thereof. At one point, the boy discovers a hobo who is stowed away on top of the train, and the hobo asks the boy for his opinion on Santa Claus. And when the boy wavers in his answer, the hobo says to him, Seeing is believing. Am I right? Seeing is believing. Later, when the train is almost to the North Pole, the train conductor says this thematic line. Wait! Wait! Well, what did he look like? Did you see him? No, sir. But sometimes seeing is believing. Sometimes, the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. Sometimes, the most real things in the world are the things that we can't see. Eventually, the train arrives to the North Pole and all the Polar Express passengers head to the city square where Santa and his sleigh will embark to deliver toys. The elves are hitching Santa's reindeer to the sleigh when the boy notices something odd. He notices that he can't hear the jingle of the sleigh bells. The doors on one of the buildings open and Santa Claus emerges to thunderous cheering and applause from the crowd of elves and Polar Express passengers. And the boy struggles to see Santa through the crowd and let's see what happens. He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows that you've been bad or good to be good. Oh, you better watch out. 
inside Better not pout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town The boy only saw Santa after he believed. He believed first, and then he saw. In all my times of watching this movie, I had never caught that for the boy, he believed first, and then he saw. Believing preceded seeing. Full disclosure, as soon as I made that connection, I thought of my faith, my belief in Jesus. And when I made that connection, my eyes started welling up with tears. Is this what 2020 has driven us to? That grown men watching Polar Express with their families weep? <laughs> well, apparently that's the case for me. The film was released in 2004, so apparently it only took me 16 years to make the connection that Paul Lauer, a key member of the film's marketing team, makes. Paul Lauer says that he sees the film as a parable for the importance of faith in Jesus Christ. I might add to Lauer's statement by saying that the Polar Express is a metaphor for 1 Peter 1 verse 8, which says, You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. In my opinion, this is the central message of the film, that believing is seeing. Or as the conductor put it, the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And look at how the NLT renders 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we live by believing and not by seeing. This is the message of the Polar Express. Believing is seeing. Last week we looked at the differences between optimism and hope. Optimism looks at the evidence and finds indicators of a positive outcome. Or said another way, seeing is believing. Seeing the evidence forms a belief in a positive outcome. Conversely, hope goes beyond the evidence to greater possibilities. Said another way, believing is seeing. Hope believes regardless of what the evidence shows, and that belief opens one's eyes to the greater possibilities. If seeing is believing correlates with optimism, then believing is seeing correlates with hope. Last week, I invited us to look at the evidence, and we concluded that the evidence does not look good. Our journey is a mess, and I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. My friend Joey Richoff, who I've mentioned before, posted a meme this week that read, Today marks five years we've been in 2020. <laughs> Recently, one of the podcasts I listened to said, Put yourself in your own shoes one year ago. Transport yourself back to December 2019. What was your frame of mind back then? What were your worries? What were the biggest concerns in your brain? 
What were the things that occupied your mental space? What was your life like? And taking the time to really engage that frame of mind reveals a dramatic difference. My mind space is completely different in December 2020 than what it was in December 2019. The evidence is bad, and I don't see it getting any better anytime soon, which puts us in prime position to resonate with the landscape faced by God's people in Isaiah 9. From 734 to 732 BC, when this portion of Isaiah was written, the northern kingdom of Israel was at the beginning stages of being invaded by the mighty Assyrian Empire. Isaiah 9 was written only a decade before the total destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrian Empire. And under these threatening circumstances, when the people of God heard Isaiah prophesy for a light bringer, when they hear Isaiah talking about a yoke breaker, a Midian destroyer, a rod breaker, the only thing they could say is verse 7. The only thing they could say is the passionate commitment of the Lord's heaven's armies will make this happen. We got a serious boot hanging over our heads. So the only way the invading army is destroyed is if the Lord of heaven's armies does it. Look at verse 4. Those who remember Gideon and Judges will remember the story of how God routed the Midianites before Gideon and his army of only 300 men. The entire Midianite army was overtaken by only 300 Israelites. Now Isaiah is recalling that story and the people can only say, the only way our new Midian, Assyria, is overtaken is if the Lord of Heaven's armies does it. It was the Lord who defeated Midian, and it'll take the same miraculous actions of God to deliver us from Assyria. Like the people of God in 732 BC, I'm looking at the evidence now in 2020 and it doesn't look good. Which is why I'm no optimist. If seeing is believing, then I don't believe because I'm not seeing it. And things went the same way after the prophecy in Isaiah 9. Things only got worse for the people of God. The capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, fell to Assyria in 722 BC. And then in 586 BC, the capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, fell to the Babylonians in 586, marking an end to the nation state of the people of God. But, contrary to optimism, hope places believing ahead of seeing. Hope goes beyond the evidence to greater possibilities. And the greater possibility came in a way nobody would have expected. Flash forward 700 years from Isaiah 9, and believing turns into seeing. Isaiah promises in verse 2 that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Who is that light? That light is the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the light? You want to see the light? Look into the face of Jesus. 
Isaiah 9.1 names Zebulun and Naphtali as the first territories to be invaded by Assyria. Look at Matthew 4 and we'll read verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Look at the location of Zebulun and Naphtali on a map. Zebulun and Naphtali are these purple and light yellow territories here. Naphtali borders the Sea of Galilee. Now, on this map, look at the location of Nazareth and Capernaum in this region of Galilee. See some similarities? Jesus launches his earthly ministry in the same area as Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are the staging ground for God to launch salvation of the world. Isaiah in verse 6 uses the title Mighty God and the Greek words here are speaking to someone who is a strong and powerful warrior. So we would expect, based off of this title, Mighty God, some strong, powerful warrior king. But who do we get? Baby Jesus, born in a cave and laid in an animal feeding trough. Isaiah says in verse 6 that he will be called Prince of Peace. The people of God in Isaiah's day are saying, we need someone who can overthrow Assyria and bring us some peace. And the people of God 700 years later are saying, we need someone who can overthrow Rome and bring us some peace. But who do we get? We get Jesus, who doesn't bring peace from Rome or Assyria. He brings us peace with God. Look at Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. The prophet says in verse 7, His government and its peace will never end. Jesus' government was not an earthly government. He didn't target Rome. He targeted the government of evil. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Jesus didn't target Rome. He targeted evil, sin, and death. The prophet says in verse 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. No one expected how literal this one would be. No one expected that Jesus would conquer, not by fighting the government, but by willingly taking a Roman execution device upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9-7 says, His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. No one expected that this ancestor of David would ascend to the throne by descending into death. David ascended to the throne amidst the celebration of the Israelite people. Jesus ascends amidst the jeering, the mocking, and the spitting of the crowd. David wears the crown. Jesus wears a crown of thorns. 
David rules with justice. 2 Samuel 8.15 says, So David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for his people. Jesus brings justice through the injustice of dying as an innocent man. After seeing him take his last breath, the centurion standing at the foot of the cross says, Surely this man was innocent. People of God, this is our unexpected hope. That he arrives to this world, that he becomes human, that he arrives as a helpless baby, and that he conquers not by might or military power, but by dying. Hope goes beyond the evidence to greater possibilities. And the evidence looks bad. The evidence looks like things are only going to get worse from here on out. People of God, believing is seeing. If you've gone through 2020 without seeing evidence of better things, then stop looking and start believing in our unexpected hope, who enters into that bleak evidentiary landscape as one of us to suffer alongside of us. Jesus enters the pessimistic landscape of our world as a humble baby who humbled himself to death on a cross. People of God, this is our unexpected hope. That when the evidence looked bad, God stepped into our world to suffer with us and for us. So sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing. Merry Christmas. Son of God, Son of man, so sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing.